You're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. The sound of night can take many forms. It can be crickets chirping, owls hooting, or... That's a person making that noise, but it was the sound of death. It was like some animal making the most agonizing noise I could possibly imagine. It just sent chills down my spine. My hair all stood up on end. My name is Eduardo Morel, and I am a bread baker. I have been for about 13 years now. I have my own business called Morel's Bread. (laughs) Pretty simple. Everybody knows what a bread baker is. Well, Eduardo is an artisanal baker. He makes beautiful, hearty bread and sells it at farmer's markets and stores. He's friendly, warm, and outgoing with curly black hair and a salt and pepper beard. Think part romantic artist and part lumberjack. Eduardo was the resident baker at an art center in the hills of coastal Northern California. Headland Center for the Arts is located in the Marin Headlands um, here in California in the Bay Area. It's the very first thing you come to when you leave San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge. There's the Marin Headlands. It's right there. And um, you take an exit as if you're going to Sausalito, but the Headlands is to the west on the ocean. And you either go up over a hill or you go through a tunnel uh, to get into there. But once you get into there, it's like you're hours away from you know, San Francisco or any kind of major metropolitan area. Back in the 1890s, the Marin Headlands was developed as a military site to protect the San Francisco Bay. The National Park Service took over the area in the 1970s and invited nonprofits to restore the buildings and take up residence. Thus, the Headlands Center for the Arts came into being, creating a space for artists to work together in an unbelievably beautiful setting in the coastal wilderness. It's an artist-in-residency program. They basically grant residencies. People apply, and they get anywhere from two weeks to maybe three months long residencies. And they come and they live there. They have a studio, um, and they get fed dinner five nights a week. I recently visited the art center. Driving through the one-lane tunnel under a mountain felt like passing through a gateway into a land out of time. The restored military buildings are like an outpost on the edge of the world. As I toured around, I remember thinking how strange and powerful it would be to be an artist working out there at night, surrounded by nothing but nature and darkness. And maybe a little spooky, too. Lots of shadows. Lots of quiet. Eduardo was extremely drawn to this beautiful, isolated place. Before I was a baker, I was in filmmaking. I went out there for a uh, volunteer dinner once, and I met the chef, Jessica Prentice. And I just started, I started volunteering because I just wanted to work in that kitchen and be in the headlands. And just one thing led to another, and I eventually ended up becoming a baker there and then starting my own business. So I like gay, I gave notice on my job at the Art Institute (laughs) in my apartment in San Francisco, and I moved out to the Headlands. If you've ever been to the Marin Headlands, you might understand why someone would basically ditch their whole life and just move out there. 
It's half an hour from San Francisco, but it's worlds away. It's beautiful out there. I mean, it's it's rolling green hills in the winter, rolling brown hills at all the other times of year. <laughs> um, and just tons of wildlife. I mean, there's deer, raccoons. There are hawks and falcons and kestrels and ravens and great horned owls nesting on the roof, bats in the attic, mountain lions, uh, and one very particular time, a bear. And then, then you have the ocean there, and there are seals and whales and dolphins and sharks. I mean, it's all like right there. Oh, and in the lagoon, there's a lagoon that separates the beach and the ocean. And you have pelicans that come through. There are otters that live in the lagoon. All the different kind of waterfowl, great white egrets, cormorants, great blue herons, uh, all just sort of hang around in this area. It's, it's actually, it's stunning. Oh, bobcats as well. I've seen lots of bobcats out there. The deer are out at night. They're out during the day sometimes, but the coyotes especially, they're, they're, they're nocturnal hunters. You see them out in the day at the headlands, rarely, but you do. But mostly the coyotes, they're, they're hunting at night in the headlands. When Eduardo baked bread in the wilds of the headlands, the work would take him from late morning to, well, early morning of the next day. That's what it takes to bake bread. It takes that long. I mean, I get there probably around 11 a.m. The first thing I do is load up the wood, start the fire. Once that's going, I start mixing doughs. Um, and I have so much bread to do that once I'm finished mixing the last batch of dough, the first batch is ready to be shaped. So then you go through shaping, cutting and shaping the bread. And then that has a period of needing to rise, but usually by the time I'm finished shaping the last loaves, the first loaves are ready to go into the oven. And you know, this is all hours long process, 14 hours maybe, because um, every the, the dough in a bulk form takes about three and a half hours rising. Then when it's shaped, it takes another three and a half hours. Uh, there's constantly stuff to do. It's like there's never, and there's, there's like a tiny break to have some dinner, you know. One thing about being a baker is that you're up at night. And in the 10 years he baked in the Marin Headlands, Eduardo saw a lot of things at night. When you ask for nighttime stories and from the headlands, I mean, my response is, how much time have you got? Because I have got some crazy stories. Some of them are weird, some of them are just fascinating, and some of them are just, what the f is going on? He does have some doozies. There's the one about the porn shoot that he came across in the tunnel leaving the headlands, but that's maybe for another time. This story comes in two parts. Part one is sort of a preamble or a foreshadowing. This one might be called What the Baker Heard. Literally, I was packing up to go home. So I had finished cleaning the kitchen and everything, and I was just putting bread in the truck and was probably 10 minutes away from driving out. But at that time, I, it was probably around 2, 2.30 in the morning. I was packing up, and I just heard this noise. Which brings us back to the sound of death. You know you want to hear it again. It was something along the lines of... It was coming from across the road, and there's like some trees. And I looked over there, and then I saw all the bushes and shrubs were all shaking and stuff. And it just kept, the noise kept on happening, and then all of a sudden, it was silent. That was all a total of about 20 seconds. I heard it, I followed the action, and then when it was just dead silent, that's when I shut the truck and ran inside and locked the door. <laughs> and waited for a while. 
I know there's not a person being killed. It just gave me chills. It was just kind of like, oh my God, I've never heard that before in my whole life. That is the craziest sound I've ever heard. I'm like, I don't know what that is, if it's a mountain lion killing something or what the heck it was. I have no idea. The next morning, Eduardo talked to the facilities manager, Chris, who confirmed that a deer had been killed. He'd shot the severed leg back into the woods, and it had probably been a coyote doing the killing. It was one of those noises which, you know, you, you don't... I mean, you're never going to hear, like, real, true agony. It's primal. You know, your instinct, then, when you hear that, is for survival. And so it was just like, where can I protect myself? Inside the building. <laughs> so... <laughs> Not that I felt I was in any real danger. I don't spook easily, and I was spooked. It was really kind of odd, an odd feeling. And I never went up there to investigate. I didn't, I, I didn't know that would have been bad, you know, because what if the predator was there and I interrupted the predator, which relates to the next story, but... <laughs> yes, the next story. It was some years later, and a bit more up close and personal. The next one, this is probably the, the most memorable of the experiences I've had in the evening there. I was still, we were still shaping. At this point, I had an assistant, this guy Jonathan, and uh, we were still shaping bread. It was Halloween, it was a Wednesday night, and it was raining. And uh, we were cutting and shaping, and I heard the, that noise again. But I looked at Jonathan, I was like, dude, did you just hear that? And he's like, what? And we're just quiet. All of a sudden we heard it again. And I hadn't quite made the connection yet to what had happened five or six years previous. And initially I thought, oh, this is some of the artists. It's Halloween. You know, they're messing with us. You know, they're outside. They're making like ghost noises or zombie noises or what have you. And then I knew it was coming from outside, so I stepped outside to see what was going on. And the rain's coming down. I sort of look up the steps. I don't see anything. And then I turn and I look. And then six feet in front of me, right on the street, on the asphalt, there's a coyote in the process of killing a deer. It has its jaws wrapped around, like just clenched on the deer's gut. And it's just yanking. Like, that's the soft spot. That's where the animal's gonna bleed out. And it was just raining, and the deer is making this noise again, like, and I'm sitting there, and I realized, oh my God, yes, I, this is exactly what happened like six years ago. And then the coyote stopped trying to take the animal, and then it looked at me. And I sat there, and I was just like, oh my God, I've interrupted something very private. I wasn't scared of this, it was really funny, because I could see it, and I knew it was happening, and I was like, this is a moment between the coyote and the deer that I need to just, I need to not be a part of this at all, even as an observer, I just have to let this be alone. And the coyote kind of looked at me, and I just went straight back into the kitchen. I was like, Jonathan, you can't believe what's going on out there. <laughs> He's like, what? And I was like, there's a coyote killing a deer. And of course, he really wanted to see it, and I get that. So we opened the door, and then at that point, the deer had slumped down into the street, and then the coyote had sort of retreated a little bit up the hill. And then I was like, Jonathan, we gotta, we have to let this go. We just have to let this be. We have to let the coyote do its thing. It's just, it's doing what it has to do. It's surviving. So we went back in, we just went back to cutting and shaping bread. I, you know, I wasn't scared at all. It was more just kind of very 
reverent of this situation, you know, something that I've never seen before, will likely never see again, <laughs> you know, a coyote killing a deer, at least not, on, you know, live and in person. And so we were cutting and shaping, we were doing the things. And then probably about, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes later, I was just like, I'm just going to go out and see what's going on. And so I opened the door, I kind of looked outside, I didn't see the deer, I didn't see the coyote, and I look up, and right outside that kitchen door, there's a huge herb planter, uh, and, you know, lettuces and stuff, and there's a big kind of cage over it, a deer cage, so the deer don't eat the stuff. And so I was kind of having to look through that cage, and then I'm looking, and I, then up on the hill, I see the coyote. He's probably about maybe 50 feet away on the hill, looking straight down at me. And I was just like, what's going on? And the deer's not around, and I'm stepping to the right, stepping to the right, stepping to the right, and then I just stop, because in my periphery caught sight of something. And I look down, and right next to my foot is the carcass of the deer with guts hanging out, and its neck kind of twisted very grotesquely. And I just, at that moment, I put two and two together that when I stepped outside, interrupted the coyote, not on purpose. You know, the coyote kind of backed off and the deer was like trying to crawl away to some kind of safety. You know, when I step out of the kitchen, I'm kind of in this little well, as it were, and the street is actually at about, well, chin level for me or so, or chest level. And it got to that ledge and fell over the ledge from the street and it hit the ground and broke its neck and died right there. And so I sat there and I looked at this thing. I was just like, oh, geez, what do I do about this situation? Is there anything to do about this situation? So I went back in, I was like, Jonathan, okay, here's what happened. The deer's outside, it's dead, <laughs> but it's right down here in the well. I don't think that Cody's ever gonna come down and finish what it's doing. And so Jonathan and I, we start shaping bread again. And I was like, Jonathan, we're gonna have to take this deer back up to the coyote. And he was like, what do you mean? We can't do that. And I was like, no, you see, I am not leaving this deer here. I gotta take this thing to the coyote. I have to give it back to the coyote. My actions took the deer away from the coyote and I have to give it back. <laughs> and I felt terrible. I felt so bad that I had interrupted. And Jonathan did too. This was all very matter of fact. This was just kind of just like, this is what we gotta do. I did the egregious act. I interrupted this coyote in the process of its survival and scared it away. Because coyotes really kind of, they're frightened of people. The only coyotes that are okay with people are the ones that unfortunately people have fed treats and stuff like that. Oh, it's such a cute little coyote. That thing will rip your hand off if it has a chance. So don't feed it your freaking beef jerky. I've seen people do that. But mostly the coyotes will stay away from people. So if you ever encounter one, they just, they skitter away as quickly as they can. So I said, all right, let's just get on some gloves and let's just pick this thing up and let's just take it up the hill to Cody. Jonathan's like, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, dude, I can't carry that thing by myself. I mean, it probably weighs a good, you know, over 100 pounds. I got to get up that hill. I can't do that without you. And he was just like, okay, fine. <laughs> so we, we both put on some gloves and we went out. I took the two front legs in my hand. He took the two back legs. And with the two of us, it wasn't that heavy. But, you know, we had to hold on to it with both hands because it was wet and it was kind of slippery. Um, but then once we cross the road and start walking up the hill, you know, we're just getting up there. It's muddy. We're kind of slippery. The deer is getting heavy. The coyote had never moved. So we were now only about 20 feet from the coyote. 
And so I was like, all right, Jonathan, we just have to throw this as, you know, as far away from us as possible and just give it to the county. So we sat there, we found good footing, and we just did the whole one, two, you know, heave ho. And then we threw, and then the deer like flew up and then landed maybe, I don't know, six feet away from us. We couldn't throw it that far. And I just looked at the coyote who was looking straight at me. And I was just like, here you go, dude. I am so sorry that we interrupted you earlier. <laughs> and uh, then we went back to work and we finished up the day, finished up the bake. And, you know, I, then I had to go down because there were some guts and stuff that had fallen out. And so I had to clean those up so people didn't encounter that. And it was raining. The eaves of the building do protect that well a little bit. So there was still some blood on the concrete. And so I grabbed the hose and I washed all the blood down the drain. And uh, I made sure the street didn't have any body, any organs or anything lying in there. And, and so I cleaned that up. And, and then we just went back to work. You know, scrubbed my hands really well and then went, went back to work. You know, I had to change my apron because I had blood on the apron. The next time I was out there, I went up to that area and the body was gone. Nothing was there. No bones, no nothing. Likely, Coyote got what it wanted and then moved on. And then the other scavengers came in, raccoons, ravens. You know, you probably, you know, the hawks or eagles as well would come in and, and get, or, you know, a bobcat or something. There's the practical element to baking bread, the physical labor and the science, but it's also an art form when done well. And remember that Eduardo was a filmmaker before becoming a baker. So it's not surprising that he's paying attention to the larger story, the motivations of the characters, if you will. I like to think that it realized what we were doing, that we were bringing it its food, so it was just waiting patiently and that it was mad at us and saying, damn straight, you brought me my dinner. And we chucked it up there, you know. I like to think the coyote then came down and, and had its, you know, got its fill and then moved on. And then we finished the night. It was still raining, Halloween night. Jonathan, he was a little bit shaken by the whole thing, but he also appreciated the, eh, I don't know, the magnitude of it. The, yeah, that's life. What we do day to day, it's kind of like whatever, but that right there, that struggle between the coyote and the deer, that is what life is, and within our own bodies and everywhere. If you're paying attention, you might notice the struggle all around you, even in making bread. Which again is another form of life and death, because I do, you know, naturally leaven, all these living cultures that are making the bread rise, and then I put it in the oven and I kill them. <laughs> For thousands and thousands of years, you know, people have subsisted on bread, and you can trace the creation of bread with the rise and fall of civilizations. There are hieroglyphs in ancient Egypt of bread baking, so it's very old. You know, it's one of the older manipulations, more advanced manipulations of food that human beings have been doing for thousands and thousands of years. And what I'm doing is very similar to what the ancient Egyptians were doing. The, the process has not largely changed. I mean, there is now the mass production of it and that's and the creation of these commercial kind of very fast-acting yeasts, but the way I do it, it's bacteria and yeast, very slow-moving process. And, you know, the Egyptians actually thought it was magic. They didn't really understand that there was actually this living culture inside the bread. They just knew that when they mixed flour and water that a few days later it would start to move and somehow they figured out that they should cook it and bake it. Somebody tried it and worked and hey, it tastes good. All this talk about life and death and history got me thinking about how the basic truths of life stay largely unchanged. And these truths are often so obvious, but also hidden at the same time hidden by the darkness of the night, and also by our cultural wish just not to know. In a time when we do everything we can to protect ourselves from the knowledge of death, 
Who might help keep us connected to the rightness of it, to the naturalness of it? Eduardo would never take himself this seriously, but really, who better than a baker? Someone who understands and respects the connection between yeast and the killing of a deer. When I saw, saw that there, I realized that while I'm, I'm connected to it, I had no business being there. It was definitely one of a few moments where you realize that we're a part of this such this bigger natural world that is so much older than we are. <laughs> and these animals deal with life and death every single day, and that's what you know. That's what they do. It's just nature. This is the you know the circle of life. This is what's happening here in the headlands and in our lives, and you know it's just we as people don't get to witness it very often like that. It's true, we don't anymore. Part of what's hidden in the darkness is true wild nature, for better or for worse. I'm usually in bed sleeping in my safe, warm house while life is playing itself out in such dramatic ways. Every once in a while, I catch something surprising, a coyote crossing a rural road, a barn owl in my backyard. But it's a thrill to know that the night still holds a world so raw and primal, and that maybe if I'm in the right place at the right time, and I'm paying attention, I'll see something amazing. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. You can find more information, including about the music in this episode, at nocturnepodcast.org. That's Nocturne with an E at the end. You can listen and subscribe on iTunes, and while you're there, maybe write a review. And if you have a night story you'd like to share, please email us at hello at nocturnepodcast.org. Nocturne.